want to welcome you all to another in the ongoing series, uh, RNC Lunchtime Lecture Series, and let you know that the next one is going to be our very own new fearless leader, Brian Stewart, is going to talk about something related to herpetology in Laos, and it's June 4th. Um, if there are those of you who haven't been getting emails about the lecture series and would like to get the emails about the lecture series, um, feel free to sign up on the sheet up front. And because I'm the collections manager for geology, I will give the um, introduction for Chris. Um, today's speaker is Chris Tacker. He's the museum curator of geology right here at the museum. How redundant. Um, he got his BS in geology from UNC Chapel Hill, and then he got his master's from the University of Maryland, also in geology. And then for something completely different, he got his PhD in modern dance from Rice University. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's in geology. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> today's talk is the best bang since the big one, catastrophic volcanic eruptions, minerals, and experiments. Take it away, Dr. Packer. Okay. Yay. Oh, thank you, thank you. That's new and different. Um, okay, yeah, this, um, yeah, what I'm going to be talking about are some of the effects of catastrophic volcanic eruptions and how you use the minerals and experiments to unravel how these things take place. Um, to give a little bit of it away in the beginning, this is a homegrown apatite crystal. You know, it's a very nice little crystal. It's about 20 microns long. But that's one that I grew myself. Um, I hope I'm not telling too many of my secrets, but um, I really like things that explode. Yeah. And I really like hot things. You know, my hobbies at home, you know, I make silver jewelry, you know, I, I like hot metal. I weld, you know, for doing my thesis work, I had to learn how to weld platinum under a microscope. I like hot peppers. You know, I've got two um, daughters, you know, one of them's 13, and we're always looking for daddy and darling kinds of things to do together. So one thing we discovered that we really like to do together is cruise YouTube looking for videos of big explosions. <laughs> you know, and this over here is the Pepco disaster. Um, it's, it generated a couple of really amazing shock waves. Uh, it's an ammonium perchlorate plant. They, um, they use it for rocket fuel. So when some welders had a little boo-boo and set the thing on fire, it was truly spectacular. This is something even better. I like grilling, too, so I can, <laughs> I can sympathize with this. Um, this is about 1995. These guys, you can see the little cloud of steam down here. These are some guys at Purdue University starting a grill with liquid oxygen, which is also familiar to you as rocket fuel. So um, that was a neat one. They actually managed to melt the whole grill. <laughs> and then down here is an open pit mine where, where they're having a shot, you know, it's dynamiting it to go a little lower. Now, this thing in the middle is what I did some of my PhD work on. It's called a hydrothermal pressure vessel. This is the furnace down here. Um, you see a little piece of ceramic right there to keep the furnace from chimneying. Uh, I tried to get a picture of the red it is when it's at about 800 degrees centigrade because it's, it's this lovely color red. You know, Revlons love that red, just doesn't touch it. But um, it's, it's really pretty. I also, you know, in the course of my career, touched one of those pieces of ceramic after I set it on the bench and burned my hand pretty severely. Other way, thanks. Yeah. Now, funny thing about Earth, our orbit around the sun is just perfect so that we have three phases, three different forms of water on Earth. We've got liquid water, we've got water vapor, and we've also got ice. So between night and day, you know, the planet's in a pretty profound state of thermal disequilibrium. Water is also important in these subduction zones here and there's another one here and then down the coast of South America. Here's Indonesia. That's a large subduction zone there. The Philippines and then on around the Pacific Ring of Fire. In these subduction zones, water that's been cooked into the rock is returned to the mantle. But these cold slabs that are going down, 
and the water they're releasing produce and perpetuate a really profound disequilibrium in the mantle and keep it convecting, keep it moving. The result of that motion is that the continents move and as they do, we build mountain chains, we tear continents apart. When you do that, populations of animals are either brought together or they're separated. So tectonics really drives evolution. Now in 1959 and um, 1961, two experimental petrologists named Neil Bowen and Frank Tuttle published a series of books that were called The Origin of Granite in the Light of Experimental Evidence. This was really the birth of experimental petrology, which is what we call cook and look. Um, what they found is that if you add water to feldspar, plagioclase, and quartz, it melts at a fairly reasonable temperature. And that's when we started really gaining some insight into what water did in a magma, in a molten rock, how it promoted the melting. Also, water is responsible for moving elements around in the crust at a whole range of temperatures. So geological fluids are very, very important. Usually when somebody talks about geological fluids, they mean beer. But here I'm talking about um, high temperature, high pressure, water, CO2, hydrochloric acid, and the like. Now, what I'm going to talk about are some of the human, human humanitarian, climate, and economic effects of catastrophic volcanic eruptions. When you go for bang and explosion, these are the biggest. These are the ones that you hear, you know, 100 miles away. They do some really fun things, and it's a really big explosion. I also just bought a bass guitar a while back. Um, I love playing bass. You know, you do this one big, deep note while everybody else is doing five or six or eight notes, and it's just got that big, percussive sound. Volcanoes have, like, basso profundo. Well, once you hear one of these babies in eruption, it's, it's not something you forget. This is a view of Vesuvius. That's Google Earth. This is Vesuvius from the amphitheater at Pompeii. Now, it erupted in August of 79 in the Common Era. And it tuned up over a few days. And of course, nobody really knew what was going on. But the upshot of it is um, it killed quite a few people in quite a few different ways. Most of the people here, I think this is called the Garden of the Fugitives here, most of these people died from being asphyxiated with ash. It was not terribly hot for an ash flow or for a pyroclastic flow, but ash is very, very fine particles. And when you breathe them in, they do like to adhere to anything moist. So generally your throat gets clogged, your throat gets um, uh, stopped up. You know, some of the people in Pompeii looked like they were really um, in some severe discomfort. Um, asphyxiation does that. However, if you look at these people, you can do stratigraphy on the ash. You know, the eruption started, we know from historical records, and we know from the rocks themselves, started with a big ash fall. What that did was it piled up ash on the roofs in Pompeii. Now you have to remember, ash is very, very fine. It will float when you've got a nice, buoyant, hot breeze. But when it falls out, it's just rock like everything else. So a house can generally take about that much ash before the roof collapses. So the first range of victims from Pompeii died when their roofs collapsed. After that, there was a pyroclastic flow. You know, it's hot gas, hot ash, temperatures range. Um, and then there was another pyroclastic, I mean, another ash fall. This fellow and this fellow survived the initial ash fall and the initial pyroclastic flow and they're trying to get their faces clear of the ash that's accumulating. Unfortunately, there was a second pyroclastic flow and that pretty much took care of everybody else. Um, we've also got this, I couldn't resist. Um, this is in our library. Yeah. You know, we don't, we don't have a, um, a name for this guy yet, but I think we need a name. Um, it was given by the Italian Trade Commission to the Museum of Art, and they didn't know what to do with it, so they gave it to us. But it's a truly unique archaeological find, and I, I like the unique part, because I, I found this on the web. 
Yeah, this, this poor dog um, was chained in its owner's yard and just abandoned. And you can see he, he didn't die a happy puppy. Uh, one of the cool things when you're looking through literature on Pompeii is they found enough dogs that they could do a um, study of it. So the Romans had sheep herding dogs, they had guard dogs, and they had hunting dogs, but they also had lap dogs. And is that the original one, the original cats? Because it has actual metal in it. No, I think the metal was added later. You can see down here, where is that? It might be um, added later or not, but that's not the original. Imagine the original is still in place. Now, Herculaneum was um, destroyed at the same time. What you can learn from examining the frescoes and the people, you know, the, the corpses in um, Pompeii, is the temperatures were about 100 degrees centigrade. The frescoes survived. People weren't severely burned. Um, and, oh, uh, an interesting tidbit that I had to throw in. If you look at the populations in Herculaneum and Pompeii, young men who were unmarried are kind of underrepresented. You know, they left town. They got out. Herculaneum is a lot closer to Vesuvius. Even though it was fairly well evacuated, the first pyroclastic flow killed everybody. And it was not nice. The examination of the victims um, says that they died of what's called fulminant shock which is essentially here one second, gone the next. They were exposed to temperatures of about 500 degrees centigrade. And you can pinpoint those temperatures fairly well by looking at the structure of the teeth of the, of the skeletons. Now, all of these people had gathered on the beach to evacuate. There were a lot of women with babies in arms. There were a few old people who could not walk by themselves. You know, they'd been carried down the ladder to the beach People on the open beach were knocked flat by the pyroclastic flow, and their bones were blackened just where they sat. The people in the boat shed itself um, died so quickly they didn't even get, um, have time to do any warding gestures or um, protective postures. This is a fairly um, bleak scenario for all of those people. It gets worse if you look at um, the Naples area. You know, here's Vesuvius. And here's Pompeii. If you look at the way it's grown up since AD 79, and here you can see Pompeii, Vesuvius, Herculaneum, Naples, and we'll look at that little area right there too. But we're talking about two and a quarter million people. In the event of Vesuvius coming awake again, that's a massive humanitarian problem. Evacuating those people safely, evacuating them without causing even more panics, finding some place for them to go, finding some place for them to eat, um, all of these things. Now, this is the Phlegrian fields here. You may know it as Camp of Phlegry as well. Um, yeah, this is another caldera. In fact, it's a few nested calderas. Um, the Campanian Tuff emerged from here at one point in time. This is still active. In 83 and 84, they evacuated 30,000 people from this area because the bottom of the caldera was rising. It finally rose about six inches and then slowly <coughs> deflated. But this area is still very much volcanically active. Yeah, and this is a picture from Journal of Geophysical Research. You can see these little um, some of them are cinder cones. There's a caldera wall. This floor has just collapsed above a magma chamber. And the main caldera wall extends behind here. This ridge right here is what you're seeing here and here. Um, and that's the size of the caldera. Um, yeah, one, one unfortunate um, side effect of catastrophic flows is it makes young ladies' eyebrows grow very, very thick. Um, this bell, uh, it's really hard to tell if it was deformed and broken by the ash flow or by the firestorm that followed. But this is a survivor, I guess you could say, of an eruption that's about 975 to 1,000 degrees centigrade. 
and here I'm talking about the 1902 eruption of, Saint in, of Montpellier in Martinique. So this is Saint-Pierre before the eruption and after the eruption. Um, it was a single ash flow that did this. Uh, it went by the name Nuée Ardente. Um, nobody evacuated the town. In fact, things had been getting worse for about a week and all the people from the countryside were flocking to the town. So the town was a madhouse. Nobody was leaving. This was the economic center of the island of Martinique. It's where all the financial institutions were. It's where all the rum distilleries were, all the sugar factories. Um, interestingly enough, one of the ships that got away was captained by a sea captain from Naples who said, if Vesuvius was acting like that, we'd all be evacuating. He left, he survived. Now you can see there's a few walls left standing on the south end of town. This is um, Montpellier up in the distance. What happened here was about 30,000 people dead in less than two and a half minutes. And what happened was not nice. Very, very few people even survived the pyroclastic flow, and those that did were, were horribly burned. There were a few sailors who were um, fortunate enough to be knocked off their boats into the ocean. After the flow passed and the air cleared, they could see a few people on the south end of town who were still alive and still moving about. But they were dancing on the hot ash about the same way that the characters in Dante's Inferno danced. And eventually they one by one threw, them, threw themselves in the ocean and perished that way. Um, there, was, there were two survivors that they were able to find. The first one was a shoemaker who was right on the edge of the ash flow. Everybody in his, in his house died but him. And he ran, burned, and mostly naked all the way back to um, another town. The other guy was Louis Ciparis, who was, um, has an interesting history. He had wounded a friend with a cutlass you know, during a drunken spree, and they'd thrown him in jail. So as part of his punishment, he had to do fatigue duty in town. And while he was out in town doing whatever nasty job they put him to doing, he heard about a dance in another part of town, escaped from the chain gang, and went and danced all night long, turned himself in the next morning to the authorities, and they threw him in solitary confinement right here, which saved his life. It, there was one little window here that faced away from the volcano. Three days after the eruption, some men heard his cries, and of course the thing is there, they came and broke him out, and he was an instant celebrity. He was the first black man ever to join the Barnum and Bailey Circus, and he was severely burned, you know, on his back, on his arms, on his feet. Um, so we have quite a substantial human toll here. Oops, sorry about that, Art. Okay, this, okay, something's wrong with this. Did I zoom? It's possible. How do I unzoom? Okay. Oh, I see. There we go. Okay. Now we need to go back one. I'm going to show you a couple of graphs. The funky thing about the um, first one is this is an exponential scale if you're not used to reading graphs. This is a normal scale graph up here. And you're looking at the magma volume ejected during these eruptions. And it's in cubic kilometers. But see, if you don't put it on a um, logarithmic scale, the big ones dwarf the small ones. Now, this is a way of looking at the size of a volcanic eruption. You know, it's the mass, the log 10 of the mass minus 7, just to give you a, a usable scale. Magnitude 7 eruptions take place every 200 to 1,000 years on average. Magnitude 8 every 10,000 years. There's only been one magnitude 9 and that's the Fish Canyon Tough. If you look at the volumes of these, okay so this is the size of several eruptions that you're probably familiar with. Um, Mount St. Helens, Pinatubo. Tambora is one we're going to look at. That was in 1815. The Bishop Tough erupted from the Long Valley Caldera about six, 760 
thousand years ago, and then the Yellowstone caldera. So you can see these get progressively bigger, and we're going up to eight right there. This is Tambora, and to get you oriented, this is Indonesia, uh, Krakatau right there in the Straits. Tambora is down here. Um, those who have gone on um, geology field trips with me, I've talked about accretionary prisms. We've got some in northern Wake County and the eastern Blue Ridge. This is an accretionary prism right here. The subduction zone, and it's piling up sediments and bits of seafloor as, as this plate heads back down into the mantle. And of course, over those, that plate are the volcanoes. This is Tambora. It's a fairly standard looking um, ah, stratocone. Now, this erupted for about four days in 1815. Most of the material wasn't ejected into the atmosphere. Most of it was pyroclastic flow. So bad news for the people living around there. The eruption columns, though, did have explosions that reached to 43 kilometers. Over the next year in Indonesia, 71,000 people died of starvation. It takes very, very little ash to kill a crop. The people who survived are the ones that were out during the eruption shaking the ash off of each separate rice plant by hand. Before the eruption, we had about a 14,000 foot mountain that was less than 9,000 feet when it was done, and it also had a caldera nine kilometers deep. This is a small magnitude seven eruption that you can expect every 200 or 1,000 years, much more frequently than an asteroid strike. 1816, though, is what we remember as the year without summer. In June of 1816, there was snow in Quebec, snow in New York and Maine. Killing frosts wiped out New England crops, some as far south as New Jersey. In Europe, the price of grain skyrocketed because crops failed. It kicked off the European and Mediterranean typhus epidemics. When people are starving, their immune systems are depressed, so they're you know, ready for any kind of bug that comes along. It's called the last widespread subsistence crisis by some historians, and in the arts, Lord Byron and Percy Shelley took their mistresses to Lake Geneva. Um, they didn't get any fun in sun. What they got was um, very cold and gloomy the whole time. But they huddled around a fire trying to keep warm and told each other spooky stories. And out of that, we got Lord Byron's um, poem, Darkness. And it's been said that that was the genesis of Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein. Here in North Carolina, these are from the records of the Moravians. In 1816, yeah, we gathered our second crop of hay and our corn crop, which were so scanty that we reaped only a third of what we usually get, and we wondered how we could subsist until next year's harvest. So this is from a relatively small volcanic eruption on the other side of the world. It has global consequences. So, Prediction of these things becomes essential. There's immediate human casualties and immediate humanitarian crises that must be dealt with. Short-term climatic disruption, severe economic disruption. And here's what I mean by that. This is from the USGS. This is the Bishop Tuff. It covered this area here. Um, Mesa Falls, this is from Yellowstone, the Lava Creek ash bed here. Uh, when Bishop Tuff blew about 760,000 years ago, it left six inches of ash in Omaha. Yeah, it's right here on the backside of the Sierra Nevadas in Long Valley Caldera. When Yellowstone blew, it left ash in this area. And you have to keep in mind these estimates of how big the eruptions are and how much area they covered are usually fairly conservative because much of the ash washes away. Now what we would see if we had a volcanic eruption like this today is economic disruption like we have never seen before. You can expect that the people in these states really know nothing about volcanoes and volcanic ash. So unless the people who are running the power grids have brains enough to shut down the system immediately, it's going to decimate the electric power grid. 
transformers cannot handle ash. If you read the USGS pro, um, preparedness papers, their handouts, one of the things in there is several rolls of saran wrap. That's because you need to wrap your computer immediately when the ash starts falling to keep it out. It's like going to the beach. Ash gets in everything. And it's small, it's fluffy, you walk through it, you stir it up. It's bad for your lungs, but it comes in the house on your shoes, and it comes in on your pants, and your computer has this handy dandy little fan to blow that crap right into the middle of your computer. So you've got to shut off your computer and keep it off until the ash is gone. You know, if you don't, that's all there is to it. This is also the region where, most of, where there's an awful lot of agriculture, you know, corn, wheat, cattle, pigs. You can look at widespread disruption or destruction of that. Just takes a few centimeters of ash to wipe out a crop. It takes about the same amount of ash to cover up grass so that livestock can't feed. They have to get smart enough to learn to blow off the ash before they can eat. So the problem here is basically, um, sorry, ash is small enough, it's got a substantial surface charge. And you rub a lot of those little pieces together and you can get some really spectacular lightning, discharges of electricity. And this is from Galungong in the um, Philippines. And this one was taken earlier last month at Readout Volcano in Alaska. This was a nighttime um, ash eruption. And somebody in Homer, I believe it was, took these and posted them on National Geographic. So you're looking at widespread destruction of electronics, you know, widespread economic disruption, quite possibly famine. You know, all of this is not good. So you want to be able to predict these to some degree of certainty. Yeah, we call these classes boom and doom in geology. You know, every department teaches one. Um, and I'll learn how to work this. So let's go back to this. What about number nine? That would be the Fish Canyon Tuff. About 28 million years ago, it erupted from the San Juan Mountains, San Juan Volcanic Field in Colorado. This is where I did part of my dissertation research. I've outlined the rim of the La Jarita Caldera in red. This is a nested caldera complex. There's another one, Lake City Caldera there, Platoro Caldera there, a smaller one, a smaller one there. This is one of the largest eruptions known to man. So just to crunch some numbers, the estimates are that it um, produced 5,000 cubic kilometers of tephra, ash, volcanic products. So you crunch the numbers. The area of the state of North Carolina is that many square miles. You end up with enough ash to cover the entire state of North Carolina and 120 feet of ash. And just for reference, here is the um, bell tower at state, which is 115 feet tall. So you could bury that under five feet of ash and the rest of the state too. And being a Carolina graduate, of course our bell tower is bigger. <laughs> so this is the Fish Canyon Tough. Um, where you start with any, any of these rocks is with the thin sections. What minerals are present? What do they show? And what do you do with it? You know, you just look at the minerals? Well, actually, no. This is a plagioclase crystal here. You can see it's broken. It had a nice crystalline form there, but it's been shattered. This is a feldspar here. You look at the exchange of sodium between the plagioclase and the feldspar, and it's a geothermometer. It tells you how hot that rock was when those two minerals equilibrated with each other. This is an amphibole crystal here. You can see the cleavages on it right there. The aluminum content of an amphibole is sensitive to pressure. So with proper analysis and mathematics, you can determine the pressure that this magma was stored at prior to eruption. There's also a magnetite down here. You pair the compositions of magnetites and ilmenites, and that gives you a geothermometer that's good to within 10 degrees centigrade. So even though 
this thing has erupted, even though it's long gone, it's cold, you can figure out what happened because you essentially took the magma chamber and poured it all over the landscape and quenched it right then. Other things that you can learn from experimental studies, you see how this quartz is embayed right here. Um, it's partially resorbed. What this means is that the quartz either equilibrated at high pressure and then the magma moved up in the crust where the quartz was no longer stable, or what actually happened with this magma is the temperature increased at constant pressure as basalt was intruded below it. Also, here's what set off that eruption. It's another magma. It's a little blob of something else that intruded into that magma chamber. And of course, here's where I get involved. These are biotite crystals here, and these are apatites right here. And that's what the, most of my research is about, and that's what I'm going to talk about for the rest of the talk. Now here illustrates one of the problems with working on apatites. There's a nice embayed quartz right there. Um, it can be hard to find these little boogers. You know, you can find them in biotite or in an amphibole fairly easily. Out in here, everything is this first order gray. So how do you find them? I used cathodoluminescence where you shine a beam of electrons at them and they glow in the visible spectrum. So here they all are, you know, just glowing like cigarettes in a dark room. Made them a lot easier to find. Okay, hmm. Well, that's backwards. So what do I work with? How do you get this information out of the rocks, out of the minerals? A lot of it is microanalysis. These generally fall into two categories. Either you rip something to shreds and you look at the shreds, or you tickle it some way or another and look how, at how it responds. Um, one of the things I'm using a lot lately is micro Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy. I've also used laser Raman spectroscopy. Um, you can't do that with the apatites because they fluoresce and it saturates the detectors. You know, they glow so bright that you don't see anything. Scanning electron microscope with elemental dis uh, um, EDA, dispersive and energy dispersive analysis. And then the electron microprobe that I'll talk about a bit more. It goes EMPA with wavelength dispersive. At state, I've used the secondary ion mass spectrometer, which is really neat. You use a beam of either cesium or oxygen atoms to blast a hole in something. And then what you've already seen is polarizing light. And then there's ways of doing bulk analysis as well. And I, I did a talk for the guys at the um, analytical instrumentation facility. And they're like, you know, you do what? Well, the big word for it's experimental petrology. Um, but everybody that does it calls it cook and look. You can also call it igneous petrology or volcanology. Trace element geochemistry and mineralogy. Um, a lot of my work has been on the thermodynamics of geologic systems, which is a mathematical way of modeling what happens with minerals, fluids, and that's how you get the geothermometers and geobarometers. And the thing that I've used the most has been the electron microprobe. This thing is a lot of fun. You can analyze an area that's down to one micro, yeah, one micrometer, yeah, a thousandth of a millimeter. So quite literally, if you give me a piece of anything, a millimeter squared, I can do a million analyses on it, on each different spot on the surface of that. You fire electrons at it. You focus the electrons with magnets. Um, the specimen emits x-rays that you run through a crystal and then diffract to your detector. At um, Fayetteville State University, they're getting a new, um, what's called the JEOL hyperprobe it's a field emission thing where you can get analyses down to 40 nanometers, which is 40 one millionth of a millimeter. So we're looking forward to having a lot of fun with that baby. And this is what I did. I looked at calibrating the appetites so that we could get thermodynamic information out of them. And that's one that I grew. There's my hot pressure vessel as well. We have one of these setups here at the museum. Um, to get back to my theme, uh, these things were originally called bombs um, because they were. 
one of the things they would do is they would stick them in um, cold water to quench them at the end of a run. And sometimes they split open, you know, the way the cigar does on Wile E. Coyote. So if you can imagine a piece of steel exploding. They also made internally heated pressure vessels, which were very much like cannons and have killed a few petrologists. But with this, you've got a hole in the middle. You put your sample in a welded platinum capsule. It goes down in there. You screw it shut. Actually, you torque it shut. And it goes into a furnace. Ours are upside down with a thermocouple that fits into the side. And the newer ones are stable for a long time, so you can just run it indefinitely. You know, temperature is up to 900 degrees centigrade, and pressure is like two kilobars, which would be, say, six to nine kilometers down in the mantle. And I don't mind passing that around. It's made out of a special steel called Rene 41. But um, one of the things you can do with these you can look at what crystals form under different circumstances. Now these are the different, um, different magmas that have come out of Vesuvius, the one that buried Pompeii and another explosion called the Palena. Now these are the crystals that you find. These are the experiments, each one of these black dots. This is temperature on this axis and water here. You can reproduce all of these together with very a low amount of crystals right here. So you can say with a fair amount of certainty the ash that buried Pompeii came from a magma chamber that was about two, two kilobars down, six to nine kilometers down. Unfortunately, the later eruption in 472 as opposed to 79, you can't do that. You have clinopyroxene and nepheline. Those two only coexist at low temperatures that are too low and at much higher percentages of crystals. But if you look at it as a function of pressure, what you find is you can reproduce the minerals you find in the Palena lavas at lower pressure. You get clinopyroxene and nepheline together at high water contents and about one kilobar. Now that is, that's not very good news for the Vesuvius magma chamber. It means all of the magma has moved up higher in the crust. So in terms of prediction, it's going to be a lot easier for that baby to start boiling and erupt. There's also going to be less time for prediction, less time to get people out of there. Now, a lot of what I do is related to the geochemistry of the apatite minerals. These things are like a Cadillac for looking at fluids. They contain fluorine, chlorine, and an OH group. They can also take up carbonate and sulfate. So you can relate the compositions to different gases, CO2, sulfuric acid, hydrofluoric and hydrochloric acid, and water. And these um, affect volcanic gases, magmatic gases, mantle fluids, and it also has something to do with the way carbonate substitutes in your bones. Now, um, when I was a graduate student, I had this wonderful idea and I thought I was really, really hot to think of it. Um, instead of working in the usual geologic systems, I thought, you know, I'll do these experiments in molten salts. And thermodynamically, they'll be much simpler, they'll be easier to deal with, and I thought it was just so wonderfully original. So does anybody have any guess when that system was first studied? 1906. <laughs> Usually, if there's something you want to do in the appetites, um, it's already been done. All of these systems had mostly been studied. Uh, there was one left over for me to have to do. But they're important because they, um, they're used in industrial phosphors, which would be making the fluorescent materials for light bulbs or for TV tubes. And there's also a weird kind of magma called carbonatites. So a lot of these were systems were studied for carbonatites. Oh yeah, and I put this up, it's danger. I'm about to show you an equation. I realize I shouldn't do that, but I'm gonna do it anyway. This is called an equation of state. Um, the delta G is a Gibbs free energy term, and it combines enthalpy, entropy, and um, heat capacity. Also, 
the volume, molar volume of the crystal. If you have this information, you can predict the state of a mineral. And you can predict what it will do in any sort of reaction. And these are all determinable by a variety of means. I chose to do it with experiments in molten salts. So you can write a reaction like this. The OH in an apatite reacts with hydrofluoric acid to produce a fluorapatite plus water. It's a fairly simple reaction. This is what happens every time you fluoridate your teeth, is you react it with a little bit of fluorine. So in practice, you measure this quantity with electron microprobe. You calculate this. You get temperature from somewhere else. Or um, what also works equally well is you make an educated guess. You rearrange it, and you solve for the amount the X is a concentration term for the amount of those two in the magma. And that is extremely important. Then you can predict compositions by turning it around. You insert this value here, or actually the um, inverse of it here, and you can determine the ratio of the apatite compositions. So what I did was I used these to determine this then that gave me the ratio of water to HF in the magma. I looked at these and said, okay, what happens if I take these and cool them down? What happens to the apatite compositions? These temperatures came from iron titanium oxides, so there's about a 10 degree error bar there that I left off. So I calculated the compositions as it cooled. And what you see is I ended up with a nice envelope that reproduces it pretty well. Yeah. This is from Wes Hilder's thesis. Now, the problem is if you do the same thing with chlorine, chloroapatite, all of this population doesn't fall in that envelope. So what this strongly suggests is that the magma is losing chlorine with respect to fluorine. So where is that chlorine going? And it's all about the bubbles. When a magma saturates with water, it gets water bubbles in it. And it's exactly like shaking up a Coke and then taking the top off real quick. The volume of that liquid skyrockets and it will come blasting out of whatever container it's held in. But when it does so, all of the chlorine, sulfur, water, and CO2 goes into those bubbles. So what happened with the Bishop Tuff is we lost chlorine from the magma there was a fluid phase before it erupted. So this thing literally blew the top off of its magma chamber. This is something that's very difficult to predict. Now, next problem I ran into, were the analyses any good? And unfortunately, the answer to that is no. When you put an appetite under the electron beam, the counts for fluorine double from about 400 to more than 800 and then drop off. And that's with the beam parallel to the c-axis of the crystal. And to try and explain that, I did some animations. Um, I really like the program. Um, and you can just see me sitting in my office playing with this. Let's see, this one. Yeah, so I've reduced most of the appetite structure to the dust of this column. These are the fluorine atoms. When you put these things in any kind of an electrical gradient, all of the fluorines diffuse up to the surface, and then as they accumulate energy, they're just gone. So what happens is they near the surface and the x-rays aren't absorbed very much. Then as they leave, the whole thing tails off. So the bad part here is none of my analyses were any good. We had to start all over. Oops, wrong one. Okay. Oh, then the diffusion animations, yeah. 
So the biggest problem is that the OH you don't measure by electron microprobe. Um, you have to calculate it from the stoichiometry of the crystal. So I set out to measure OH by um, Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy. How hard could it be? That was stupid. You know, I did come up with a big um, bonus with the CO3. Oh yeah, real science goes boing. Um, One of the things that you worry about when you're with, working with spectroscopy is um, how many different ways can a bunch of um, atoms move with respect to each other? Okay, this is the apatite structure looking straight down the C-axis. The orange ones are oxygens and the um, smaller ones are hydrogens. And they all tend to be ordered. But they all go boing. <laughs> and they go boing at a very specific frequency. So let's go back to here. Now, when you're interested in all the different ways these things can go boing, you'd think, how would you figure it out? You know, if you have four atoms, how can they all move with relation to each other? Fortunately, the mathematicians have already figured it out for us. It's a thing called group theory. But um, the mathematicians did it. We don't have to. That makes things better. This is a spectrum of an apatite from a pegmatite up in Maine. Here's the carbonate right here. And this is the OH stretching vibration down here. So how hard could it be? These are apatites full of fluorine with just a little bit of water. So the positive end of the OH interacts with the fluorine, and you get a peak at about 3535. And that's reciprocal centimeters. It's, it's related to frequency. If you have an OH, I mean, an OH group right next door to a chlorine, you get a different sort of peak. But I thought, why worry about that? This, this appetite is you know, 96% fluorapatite, we shouldn't see anything with chlorine. Unfortunately, we did. And it took me two years to get the mathematics of this right. But if you calculate this, what you find is that this appears much more than it should if it was just random. You know, if this was random distribution, you wouldn't see this at all. So there's something going on here. These have to be ordered next to a fluorine to get the chlorine crammed in there. See, chlorines are very big, and really they're both, this is negative, this is negative, this is negative. It's like having the wrong end of two magnets next to each other. You know, they repulse each other. Well, one thing I found, though, is if you put an OH in between them, then the chlorine and the fluorine don't interact, and the, you get that one peak where you shouldn't. So there's some kind of ordering going on there. Um, that affects all of your entropy calculations. Now, other fun stuff, I started looking for carbonate in these appetites, and everybody told me, you will not find it. So there's different stretchings, and let's see, we're getting near the end of this, different stretching vibrations for each of these. So how many different ways can four atoms go boing? Keeps me awake at night. Come on. And show. Yeah. And it turns out that there's four. The first one's a symmetrical stretch. The other one's an out-of-plane bending, an in-plane bending. Yeah, <laughs> well, I need, I need the right soundtrack, you know? <laughs> um, but what I'm looking at is the asymmetrical stretch. Now, let's see. And what I found, first of all, was that, yes, there really was carbonate in these, 
but I also shed some light on the problems with having carbonate incorporated into your bones and teeth. You know, where does it go? And I'm almost done, Trish. That's all right, I was just Okay. <laughs> um, it turns out, when you look at the asymmetric stretching vibration, you get peaks in pairs. Um, I can explain this more if anybody wants to know. It's because that peak is doubly degenerate. I love that phrase. <laughs> doubly degenerate. If you have five atoms, they can be triply degenerate. Um, but this is one type of substitution right here. The two red ones are another type. The two green ones are a different type. What happened when I got these spectra is I could not interpret them until 2004. There's a peak right here that I couldn't identify, and then there's a broad peak here that nobody had ever seen before anywhere in the entire literature. In 2004, a paper came out that identified this other substitution, and bingo. I could take that peak apart into two different ones. But things went downhill from there. Um, okay, this is one of the type A substitutions. It substitutes for a fluorine or two fluorines. You can cram it in there with two oxygens like that or two oxygens sideways, and they give you a different signal. Then I got this. It turns out that there's not only two different type A's, there's two different type B's, and I can show the animation on that. This was the key to understanding the spectra that you get off of your teeth and bones and that you get from precipitated appetites. They're so fine-grained that they're not very well crystalline, so the peaks are broad. What happens is these different peaks kind of all merge into each other and they can't be um, distinguished. But if you have a really nice big crystal, like I was smart enough to use, I got fat fingers, so I wasn't gonna mess with anything small. You know, I wanted big crystals then you can actually make out that there isn't one substitution there, there's two. And yeah, what happens is they substitute for different sides of a phosphate group. It's a phosphate there. One goes on one side and the different one goes on the other. And this is what the grant proposal I just turned into NSF in December is about. This is one of the most important variables in all of igneous petrology. How much water and how much CO2 is in the magma. And here we have one mineral where we can measure both of those and actually get some meaningful information. So I'm hoping that we'll get funded and I'm hoping we'll get an FTIR for the Nature Research Center. If you put up the um, position of the two different type B peaks, you can see just about everything else that's measured falls between those, a mixture of the two. And there's actually a third one up here that's, um, that I found that's what? Yeah, it's a sodium. There's a sodium that substitutes with the carbonate and goes up here. So everything that you measure falls in between those three. And yeah, that's it. Thank you very much for your patience and I'll take any questions you have time for. So Chris, how does this help predict when it's going to blow? You can look at what's, you can look at tephra that's coming off of a volcanic eruption and get a picture of what's going on with the gases. Now one thing that's widely observed is um, When a new batch of magma intrudes into the crust, you get a big spike of sulfur coming out the top. And that may or may not be from the magma itself. It may be from a magma below it. However, you can take a look at something like this You can also do, you can do this for fluorine, chlorine, OH, and CO3, and see how much water is in there. Once you know how much water is in there, you can predict at what depth 
it's going to, it'll start to bubble, or you can call it a second boiling. So you can predict that depth. You can also keep a close eye on seismograms. In fact, you can do this for readout as well, readout. Um, when magma is on the move, it makes a very peculiar kind of seismic signature, kind of like that. Now, it's called a harmonic tremor, but it's very wavy instead of just the usual up and down, up and down. So you can combine geophysics with what you're measuring from the magma chamber itself. And you can do this without a whole lot of sample. You can also look at the lifetime of a volcano and get a feeling for its rhythms. You know, what happens with each eruption? You know, most of these things are very much out of the lifespan of men. You know, they haven't been observed. But you can go back and reconstruct what was happening with those gases, even though those gases have been gone for millions of years. So first of all, it's historical. Second of all, you know, it's predictive. You can look at the compositions. Um, a thing that would be especially spooky, say, is if you saw this, instead of having something up here that was losing chlorine, um, if that field was down here. That would mean there's another magma below the one that's erupting that's pumping gases into that magma chamber. And that's what set off the Fish Canyon tough. What you have to do, though, is have a decent working thermodynamic model because you know crudely that as you cool this, the amount of chlorine in the appetite is going to, um, is going to fall. This is essentially a closed system on that line. Calculate that and then, okay, if we keep those gases constant and cool it, what happens to the appetite? So it'll cool along there. You have to account for that cooling or the changes in temperature to get anything meaningful out of it. Otherwise, you could just look at it and say, oh yeah, you know, the chlorine's dropping, but that's what we expect it to do. Here, the chlorine is dropping too much. And actually, I found a way to invert this data and combine the fluorine chlorine with the fluorine and the OH, and you can work out a magmatic pressure temperature path from the appetite compositions, if you assume a closed system. Okay? Any more? Art. One thing you didn't mention is that with those volcanic ash eruptions, they also play havoc with uh, automobiles. Yes. And your lungs, and your nose. You know, so if we have a large volcanic eruption, one of the first things you can expect is that all the dust masks and lows are going to be gone. Okay. So if the, for example, the Yellowstone caldera <coughs> they're mm -hmm. saying is past due for an eruption. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of things on the Discovery Channel where they mm -hmm. say, well, it's past due, and here's why. Uh -huh. And so if experts were to determine that they see signs of things coming, mm -hmm. it really wouldn't do any good to tell the general public because of the map that you had that showed the area that would be affected in our, in our continent anyway, in our country. Would it, I mean, because you can't evacuate that amount of people, where would you put them? What would yeah. you do with them? And there aren't going to be enough dust masks. They're all going to be dead. Well, they're not going to be dead. You can put a wet cloth over your face, too, really? and it's fairly effective. Food? Um, you would need to stockpile food, protein of some kind. Um, vitamins wouldn't hurt. Water, you can look at the, um, a lot of the intakes for water plants being choked by ash. What, what period of time, I mean, being realistic, what period of time would you have to let the people of this country know that will believe you? Oh, it varies. <laughs> it very much varies. That's why you monitor these things constantly. You can look, um, Mount St. Helens was tuning up a few years back, but um, you can look at uh, the earthquake locations between the, um, you know, underneath the volcano. And if you look at those for the last time this happened, what they did was the earthquakes got steadily higher moving towards the volcanic edifice, then they stopped, 
and it was a passive degassing event. You know, just passive, you know. Um, there are a lot of good verbs for that, but not that I should say with a microphone strapped to me. Um, you could look at the last event and then see, okay, this one is going on, you know, pretty much the same way and make some, make some fair assumptions, you know, it's not time to panic. There are other signs that would say, yes, it's time to panic. How much time you would have really varies. You know, but how much time would you need in order to tell people that, are, again, are going to believe you that they need to make these preparations? Would you need a year? Would you need six months? Because um, the dust mask will be gone. You know. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know. And it really varies from volcano to volcano. But um, in Houston, um, any time a, a hurricane entered the Gulf, people already knew what to do, and they'd be prepared within 24 hours. Yeah. People always didn't do the smart thing. I mean, I was in the grocery store one time, you know, getting ready to camp out for a week. All the stuff I wanted, nobody was buying. But there was a woman in, with a grocery cart full of cake mixes. You know, she was getting ready for a hurricane baking cakes. You know, and you don't know what they're thinking. But um, you can get significantly prepared in a fairly short amount of time. Yeah. I mean, it looked like the whole center of the country was going to be. Could be. But what if it's not as large as you expect? Or it doesn't, ash doesn't travel as high as you expect? Okay, Jesse? If you get several centimeters of ash on, say, an agricultural field, uh, can you plant it the next year? Does it have toxic effects on the plants? Or? Generally not. The reason people in Indonesia and Italy live on the flanks of these volcanoes, it's extremely fertile. In fact, the best coffees in the world come from Indonesia. You know, it's, I, don't, I drink Island Art coffees. You know, I don't go for um, Rift Valley coffees. I like Island Art coffees. All right, well, we've definitely gone beyond our normal time. So <laughs> okay, thank you all very much. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Chris. Um, well, yeah, give me that bomb. <laughs> stack the chairs, make sure there's five in the pile.